From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Megan Leipsch. When I first met Father Tim McCabe, he was sporting clerics and a construction zone hard hat, specialty branded with the Pope Francis Center logo. Out of the back of a utility van, he handed us our own hard hats and then guided us onto a grassy ledge overlooking the newly bulldozed foundation of what will become the Pope Francis Center Bridge Housing Campus. Over the cacophony of construction machinery and blaring reverse signals, Tim laid out his vision for ending chronic houselessness in Detroit. The Pope Francis Center, or PFC as it's known, is a day shelter in downtown Detroit that offers respite to hundreds of unhoused people every day. When Tim came to PFC as executive director in 2015, it was a bare bones operation, a place where people could escape the blustery winter streets of Detroit and get a quick meal. Since then, Tim has overseen a building renovation, creating a functioning kitchen to make hearty and nutritious meals, as well as showers, sinks, and a laundry room for guests. The center has also developed wraparound support programs that assist guests in finding stable housing, jobs, mental health resources, and medical care. Today, Pope Francis Center is a bustling and welcoming space, and I can tell how proud this makes Tim and his team. But Tim had this nagging feeling that they weren't really solving the problem. They weren't addressing the roots of housing insecurity. And so the Bridge Housing Campus was born. Upon completion, the campus will house 40 people in individual units for 90 to 120 days, offering 24-7 services, including meals, medical care, psychosocial support, job readiness programs, and more. At the end of their stay, guests will transition into permanent, supportive housing through the assistance of PFC specialists. The approach is singular. No other Detroit organization is offering intermediary housing with the goal of placing guests in permanent housing. For Tim and his team, the consistency that this campus will provide is vital. PFC will be able to steward guests throughout their transition, from coming into the day center for showers or meals, to receiving more intensive services on the Bridge Housing Campus, to eventually permanent housing. Tim speaks a lot about trust. He says homelessness is a failure of society and that systemic failure has broken the trust of many people who find themselves unhoused. PFC aims to rebuild that trust, meeting people where they're at when they walk through the doors. Tim's vision for the Bridge Housing Campus stems from that trust and a desire to continue it to accompany and support people throughout their journey to permanent housing. Later that day, in a place slightly quieter than a construction site, Tim and I met to chat more about PFC, about how small changes can make a big impact, and conversely, about how asking the simple question, how hard can it be, can lead to transformative change. I started, boldly, by asking him about a quote of his that I found in a 2017 homily published online, to which he responded, First of all, where did you find a 2017 <laughs> homily? <laughs> Nevertheless, I persisted in quoting his own words back at him. Quote, The more we trust in our own self-reliance, whether it's our own will or trusting in weapons of war or executive orders of exclusion, 
the more we fall under the hypnotic delusion that we are actually in control. I asked him how he has learned to relinquish control as an individual, as an executive director, and as someone with a clear vision for social change, all identities that, in some way, might compel people to seek more control, not less. It's kind of a countercultural idea, isn't it, that we're not in control? And uh, I, I, I think that working with the homeless and the material poor in my life has helped me to see that, you know, they, they don't have any illusions about who's in control of their lives. You know, they constantly talk about God being in control and their lives being blessed. And, you know, that, that is something they've taught me over time. I think what happens when we have wealth and the more wealth that we have, we begin to feel like we have control, right? We can control the way our body looks. We can control what we, how we look and how we, what car we drive and what house we live in. And suddenly it's like God doesn't have a place in any of that stuff. And so uh, I think that's delusional. I think that that's a, it's not true. Like we are fully dependent upon God for everything. And so that doesn't change our need for uh, working hard towards change in the world, especially on just systems. But it does mean that it's not up to me. It, it's up to God. And, and like I, our job is to be the agent of that, that divine love and to work with that spirit and to um, seek guidance from that, those movements, those spiritual movements from God to help direct us towards that more just world that we're which is the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. So that that's where I think I was going with that homily was like, like, you know, uh, we have to acknowledge our dependence upon God and all that happens, all the gifts, and, and certainly for guidance and helping us in this time in particular where our country is in such upheaval, when there's such division, you know, more than ever, we have to seek God's wisdom and guidance as, to help us, you know, steer ourselves, our work for justice in the right direction, because it's complicated, right? Yeah. 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 And I think that's so true, because I think so many of the issues that you're working on, you know, in terms of chronically unhoused people, economic injustice, um, or even our ecological crisis, you know, a lot of that stems in some way from certain people wanting to control, you know, certain things. And that means the majority of the planet, right, is shut out of, of, of certain resources or opportunities. Um, but I think it also, for me personally, goes the other way where I very much struggle. Um, that's been a learning curve for me in my time working with the Jesuits um, is learning a little bit of that, that Ignatian detachment and that feeling of, you know, I, I am not God. There is a God and I am not God. Yeah. And I think I see a lot of burnout in people where they, they think they've got to be the one to make the, you know, to deliver. And when we're agents of that spirit, when we're in sync with God, and then we we don't burn out, you know, because God also wants us to play and joy and, you know, love our lives. You know, it's not all about the work, but it also is like when we're in sync with that movement, it's we're less prone to resentments and burnout and those things that kind of are counterproductive. You entered the society a little bit later in life after 
raising your daughter, Mary. Um, and I'm curious, you know, how that perspective of, of being both a parent and then a priest um, has informed the way that you approach ministry. Yeah, uh, Mary's been the greatest thing that ever happened to me where we've always had a close relationship and we continue to and um, and we share kind of a passion for, you know, she got involved in Ignatius Spirituality because I was running the Jesuit Volunteer Corps for 12 years. So between, she was, I think, eight when I started. And so she would go to our final retreat every year, got to know the volunteers and got really turned on to the whole social justice work that the Jesuit Volunteers are doing. You know, she went to Loyola University of Chicago. She got kind of in, into Ignatian spirituality. And I mean, it was a beautiful, you know, so it was something we got to share. You know, we have a shared love of that. You know, it's how we pray and how we understand the world. And um, it's interesting that the, I feel like the lay church is so ready for uh, a non-celibate male clergy. You know, that, that, and they're so, excited to know that I have a daughter, that I raised a daughter, that that opens up the, it has opened up people's ability to trust me with their stories and their struggles. And they feel oftentimes I'll say like, oftentimes it feels like a solid male doesn't, wouldn't understand the struggles that they're having as parents or as married. And so um, I think the church is, at least the lay church seems really ready for that. And that has really helped me and ministering to others who are struggling. So almost from the outset of your entrance into the society, you've worked with people who are unhoused. So you provided hospice support to unhoused people in San Francisco um, and offered retreats to homeless individuals through Ignatian Spirituality um, Project. And so what has led you or, or kind of drawn you to this ministry in particular? That's a really good question. I don't really know the answer. I just know that I'm fed, you know, by them that I, you know, I have my own struggles in my life that um, help me to see that, you know, we're all in this together and that, you know, they're, they're, the folks that are um, unsheltered, those who are experiencing homelessness are not any different than me. And there, by the grace of God, you know, I'm where I am. Um, so they, but I find great joy in being with the folks, you know, I was like I was saying earlier, people will come in to our center. It's seven o'clock in the morning. It's been raining all night. They're wet. They're cold. You know, they're, you know, we offer bad coffee, but good food. And, you know, I'm like, how are you doing today? And they'll, you know, people will say, I'm blessed. And they mean it. Like they really feel blessed because we offer them shelter and we offer them food and a place where they can do laundry and showers, things like that. So, like they teach me to be grateful and they bring out the best in me. So I'm the one that's benefiting from this relationship, you know, more than 
anything I think I can bring to their lives. Um, so it's just been, you know, my selfish in some ways. Like I, I, I just love what I do. I love the people I'm working with and, you know, I continue to be benefit from learning from them. When Tim was missioned to the Pope Francis Center, it was called St. Peter and Paul's Warming Center. Since then, the center has changed more than names. It was August. It was my first assignment after my ordination. And I was telling people, I'm going to back to Detroit to work in a warming center. And they're like, it's 90 degrees in August. Why do you need a warming center? I'm like, <laughs> it's so much more than that. And so um, we, I thought we need a name to better reflect that. And I just read an article about uh, Pope Francis opening showers for, for the homeless in the Vatican area. And so I'm like, who better to symbolize what we're trying to achieve here than the man that really shows compassion and love and concern for the poor. So we changed the name and we, you know, we were really uh, just blessed with generosity and we, you know, the UAW Ford Fund gave us a huge gift to renovate the back of the church so that we were able to put in a commercial kitchen, a laundry facility, we put in showers and bathrooms and, you know, we were able to provide clinical space so that we provide medical clinics and dental clinics and legal clinics, things that the folks that are experiencing homelessness and those mostly who we see are the chronically homeless people have been on the street for a year or more, the, the services they need to kind of survive. You mentioned earlier today when you had first come, you know, there wasn't the kitchen. Um, and so you were, you know, the center was really subsisting off of donations and some of that was older food. And you found that when, um, you know, you were able to have the kitchen and more nourishing and, and nutritious food, you know, um, that that really changed the behavior and some of the feeling of, of the center. There was a real dramatic decrease in behavioral issues in the center when we did that. So you know, we were, like you said, where it was day-old pizza and beans and franks and a lot of donuts and high sugar, high starch processed foods. And when we hired a chef and started to provide nutrient-dense, balanced meals, there was just a radical change. I mean, the place became more peaceful. The highs and lows weren't as uh, extreme for the guests. To, you know, so we're dealing with people who are uh, dealing with some pretty severe trauma in their life. And a lot of addiction, a lot of mental illness, things like that. And so all of a sudden there was just like this change. And then, you know, we often will have, you know, the those who are materially poor and unsheltered will use the emergency room for primary care because they have no other options. And so we're definitely, you know, sending people to the ER a lot more than we should be. But that started to decrease as well. Like there wasn't as many needs for emergency care. And so that was... Um, a real uh, eye-opener. I mean, I, we know that nutrition makes a difference in our lives. We saw it play out in the center. And the other thing that happened, which was really um, beautiful, was the, the gratitude for our change and our willingness and our desire to feed them good food. And we've got this great chef. He's got great, you know, he'll do great soul food, those greens and, you know, but really healthy and they feel cared for. They, they, they really see the effort that we're putting into taking care of them. And it, it, it has changed our relationship with them. It has helped them feel our love and concern for them in a way. I think it really demonstrates part of the larger ethos, I think, of, of what 
you know, I saw at, at the center <clears throat> this morning and, and what I've heard before, um, which is that real like relationship focus and the trust building. And it did sound like having nutritious food would be this kind of small change. Um, but I think it's, it's very much emblematic of the effort that you're trying to make, um, to make people feel seen and heard and understood and, and welcomed, which is in effect, no small thing. Yeah. And we, we have come to understand that, uh, homelessness at the root is trauma. There's trauma, childhood trauma, and different levels of complex trauma that have, uh, led to people ending up, uh, unsheltered. And so we, kind of operate under the belief that radical love is the solution to that and the healing for that and community is the context. So we try to be really mindful of not judging people and to try to understand that when people come at us with aggression or anger that, you know, they're dealing with their own internal stuff. I mean, it's directed towards us, but it's not about us. It's about them and their struggles. And so it gives us a greater capacity to be compassionate. zero in on chronic homelessness and you know what what is it um and what is kind of unique or particular about some of the issues in detroit that pfc is is trying to address okay so chronic homelessness is a term that the government uses to and it's defined by someone who has been homeless for a year or longer or multiple times three or more times in the last four years so that's how they define it. And that's the majority of the people that we serve on a daily basis are the chronically homeless. Um, I found from traveling around the country and kind of working with other programs that the demographics of homelessness changes uh, around the country. So, you know, we have a largely African-American uh, male population. Detroit has long been embattled by economic issues. In the decades after World War II, many white and wealthier Detroiters left the city for the suburbs, following the manufacturing companies that moved out of the city too. The resulting deinvestment in the city led to urban blight and chronic poverty. Years of recession forced the city to declare bankruptcy in 2013, sparking a wave of unemployment and disrupting crucial social services. Homelessness ballooned. While it has decreased in the intervening years, Roughly 7,800 people were unhoused at some point in 2020. Nearly 2,000 of those people are chronically homeless, according to the Homeless Action Network of Detroit. One of the things that we decided as a team was um, when I got there, what we, we say, what we do, we do really, really well. Like we, we love the culture of love and acceptance and um, you know, community that we try to foster with the folks that are homeless. But we weren't really changing their situation. We were basically just doing kind of transactional approach to homelessness and not really helping them um, move out of homelessness. So I did go around the country. I looked at 22 different programs in nine different cities. 
and um, I began to glean best practices about who was most effective in treating chronic homelessness and what were they doing. And so I came back and kind of built this model that I think will be effective in uh, uh, ending chronic homelessness in the city of Detroit. City does a great job. There's a lot of good organizations that are doing great work and are really keeping the numbers of homeless um, down in the city, but there's kind of this gap on services around the chronic homelessness, mostly because they're the hardest to house. They're, once you've spent six months or longer on the streets, it's very hard for you to make the transition out of that. So we're going to provide the support system that I've learned from other people's experience will help them. You know, it's, it takes a lot of support to make the transition off the streets. There's, there's, you know, you've got to deal with the trauma, you've got to deal with the addiction, you've got to deal with mental illness, and you need a lot of support around you and, and to feel your own agency in that process so that you're kind of determining where this is going. But most of the folks that come to us ask for help in getting off of the streets. You know, some people, especially severely addicted, will say, you know, they like being on the streets, they don't have to answer to anybody. But, you know, once they get done, they, they get done and get tired and they come to us and say, I can't do this anymore. So... We have a building in them currently uh, in, that you saw in early stages of construction and we'll, we'll be able to help people make that tra difficult transition from the streets to permanent, permanent supportive housing. According to PFC's Director of Housing Advocacy, Chris Harthen, one of the barriers to permanent housing is consistency. For an unhoused person to receive subsidized housing, they might have to go through several rounds of applications and meetings with various social workers. Varying between different agencies and representatives can leave people frustrated. Through the Bridge Housing Campus, Chris hopes to streamline the housing process for guests. Once situated on the campus, PFC staff will work with the guest, serving as their representative to state agencies. And within 120 days of arrival, PFC hopes to have secured permanent housing for its guests. We don't have a real time frame that we're sticking to in terms of how long somebody can stay. We think that based on others' experiences that between 90 and 120 days, we can get people um, um, from the streets into permanent housing. So um, that process, they'll live in studio apartments on our campus. There'll be um, a whole host of support services. So we'll have social work, we'll have addiction therapy, addiction counseling, we'll have... Um, trauma therapists, life skills training, um, job readiness programs, all the things that we think they can use to help them make that process. Plus, it's just a supportive community to help them navigate. One of the things that we hear often when people get into housing is they, they can't tolerate the silence. It's so quiet and they're so used to being on the streets or they'll sleep on the floor next to their bed or on the balcony because they're not used to being in a bed. So you know, recognizing that that transition is hard and like offering them what we can to make that transition easier. And uh, we believe like it will help them make it uh, more sustainable and doing it in the context of community where they're not alone, but they're doing it as a group of people doing this together will help. So well, the gymnasium will have a free health clinic. Um, and a variety of classrooms and libraries, things that they'll, you know, they have access to while they're staying with us. And then a housing specialist that will help them navigate. It's a complicated process from how it shouldn't be, but it is from homeless to housed. 
Over the summer, Tim traveled around the U.S. visiting other organizations, religious and secular, that are working to end homelessness. He says one of the things he heard over and over from housing advocates and social workers alike was that to end chronic homelessness, people need to trust you. Following Tim around Pope Francis Center, it's clear to see that guests trust the staff. People call out greetings to Tim, offer hugs or jokes, or updates about their lives. They also share stories of deep pain and suffering. More than just providing services, it's relationships that define PFC's work. For Tim, their mission cuts to the core of human experience. That's what we actually have already established in our current day center. So, you know, we don't require anyone to sign anything when they come to us. They don't have to fill any forms. They don't have to tell us anything about themselves. Anybody is welcome to whatever we have. They just come to our door. I mean, we have rules they have to follow while they're in our building, but they're simple rules and they're pretty easy to follow for most people. Um, but that's that's the kind of context of like just being able to come in and receive what we have to offer. And then, you know, as they're comfortable with us, as they get to know us, then they can start, they'll start to open up and they'll start to tell us their stories. And it's, a, there's radical honesty among the folks who are home are experiencing homelessness when they trust you, you know, they'll, they'll tell me when they shot up last and like how, whatever their experience is, they're, they're going to be honest with us. And once we have that relationship, we can help them. One of the things is that I have such a great team of people that I work with and our volunteers are phenomenal in terms of, we have friendships. They're, they're not just people that come to us, you know, for services. We're, we're friends. We're in this together. And so that really allows us to kind of begin to help them imagine something different for themselves. Like a lot of the guys that are shooting up under the overpasses are, don't, can't imagine anything different for their lives. They just believe they're going to live and die shooting up heroin under the overpass at I-75. And, you know, but when they feel our unconditional love for them and they can open up to us about what's going on with them, we can have that conversation to help them imagine something different. And, you know, that, that somebody would take that time or the effort to do that is, you know, is something they've never experienced before. So, well, I've seen great success so far, and I believe that, that we have the foundation to really uh, make a difference in these folks' lives. There's anywhere between 40 and 65 folks a year that die on the streets. And so we, we do uh, a funeral basically for them and we have a more memorial service. Um, so we've got a kind of, and I, I like the fact that and I started doing this in Chicago with ISP and we, we brought it to Detroit. Like we're beginning to bring more and more people in five days before or four, a few days before Christmas, you know, in the busiest time of the year, People stop, they come to the church, and they pray with us and for those who have died on the streets. And that awareness is, is shocking. When you see all those pictures and all those candles up on the altar, people are like, wow, this is a, this is a national crisis. The National Health Care for the Homeless Council estimates that nearly 46,000 people die on the streets each year. 
It's a staggering statistic, and yet there is no national data set on the homelessness mortality rate. Many expect that 46,000 is an undercount. We've got to acknowledge that that's a reality, and we've got to start thinking about folks that are experiencing homelessness as human beings that are people who are, are not lazy and they're not, you know, uh, unworthy of something better than living on the streets. They're people who are uh, victims of trauma and oftentimes abuse. And oftentimes, once they're on the streets, the, the abuse and the trauma continues. I mean, they're victims of violence on the streets. They're victims of, I mean, I had a guy come in not too long ago that, um, he was panhandling and somebody threw his their Slurpee from 7-Eleven and just covered him. He was just soaked in this oh slush and, you know, yelling, get a job and things like that. Like they continue to experience abuse. People yell things at them. You know, there there's poor on poor violence, you know, that happens on the streets. So, you know, that that's a, uh, that's a failure of us as a society um, when we have so many people living on the streets and so many people dying on the streets and, and, and an inability in the richest nation in the world to figure out this housing crisis and to really, I mean, the, it's a simple equation in some ways that the solution to homelessness is housing. You know, that's really the bottom line is like, you know, what, what is affordable, what is accessible to folks is the question and what, we, what are we willing to offer to people and how much do we take responsibility for uh, their welfare? Yeah, I think that's an important point that, you know, uh, homelessness and like many other issues in our society should be seen as, as a failure of society, not as a failure of, of the individual. There's another element to this that, um, and that has to do with the, the racial reckoning that this country needs to come to. Like the, the vast majority of folks that are experiencing homelessness, at least in the Midwest, probably around the country are, are African-American. And, you know, we've never had a reckoning with the fact that this country was built upon uh, slavery and about uh, the subjugation of another race. And until we do that, we're going to, we, I think we'll fail to ever come to real, um, real solutions to the social evils of our time. And, you know, it's just the, I'm so grateful for the Black Lives Matter movement that began to address, expose some of the, the what was happening, what is happening in our country. And, but that, that, that is part of the story of homelessness is what we have done to people where they have landed as a result of that. One of the things that has struck me about, about being in Detroit is, you know, Detroit has this huge kind of urban footprint um, and it's it's very much it's not a very dense city I think someone told me it's about there are about 24 square miles of, of vacant land just in the city um, so I think going back to that that point of you know the failure of society um, is it's not that there isn't housing available it's not that there isn't land or resources available um, it's, it's what we are making available or restricting availability to. I say that all the time to, at our events. I say no, the, o the only thing stopping us from ending chronic homelessness is the will to do it because the solution is there. It's, it's just a matter of whether or not we're willing to, to take the steps and to do what we need to do to end it.
you had said earlier today that you often say, how hard can it be? Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the phrase my staff never want to hear. <laughs> how, how hard can it be to build housing for the homeless? <laughs> so you've been, you know, director at PFC now for about seven, seven years, mm-hmm. eight years. Um, so what has surprised you in this time? What, what have you learned? Even though I've worked with the homeless a lot in various cities and various ways, I mean, the, the amount of brutality and death that we've seen has been a little uh, jarring for me, and, but also my team. I mean, we had the fentanyl epidemic that, you know, people were dying left and right. And I mean, there's that and there's just the, the people freezing to death during the winter. And so that, that's been uh, something that kind of jars me. Uh, when it happens, I never expect it to happen, but it just continues to. Um, and I think that just the resiliency of folks and their their ability to be joyful and feel blessed when they're experiencing such hard lives. I mean, I just marvel at like the amount of, I don't know if you saw it, I mean, there's just a lot of joking and laughing and, you know, yeah. enjoying life. I mean, that's, uh, I think that's nothing short of miraculous when people have such hard lives with such hard histories and uh, are living, you know, day to day on the, you know, generosity of others, really. So I think that's been real, a gift that I they have given me over the last seven years. And really the generosity of, of the community. Like this building project, when we began in, 16 or 17 this was a 19 million dollar building and because of the pandemic and the labor shortages and the supply chain disruptions we're now at 35 million dollars and the community just continues to rally around and help us you know invest in this project um in an extraordinary way i mean it's i mean we have no alumni base we've got nothing but you know, the generosity of the community around us that says, you know, we care. It seems like there's there's a lot of pride, both, you know, with the guests who are coming into the center and also with the community. And even just being able to meet some of the people who are who are involved um, in, in terms of the board and, and things this morning, I think there's, there's a lot of um, community pride. Um, and that, you know, like that extends to the community that you're working with yeah, yeah, that's really nice. I, I'm really blessed to have that kind of support around because I, this couldn't happen otherwise. That's it for this week's episode. If you want to learn more about Pope Francis Center or support their work, we have a bunch of links in the show notes. We also have some resources on housing advocacy. So no matter where you're listening from, you can get involved with local housing campaigns in your community. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit Justice, on Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and at Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you're interested in discerning a vocation with the Jesuits, visit BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. And subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks.